0: Hello, my friends, and welcome to another moment, another Black History Moment with Bo. And I hope you're doing well today. I hope that your life is flowing in the direction for which you want it to flow. I must say you mustn't forget my voice this morning. It's kind of hard getting the cobwebs out When you've been away from this mic for more than a week, but I'm back with some new things to tell you, some new ideas, and some new truth. You know, I never hardly get into politics on this show, but I gotta tell you, I went and listened to a politician over this past week, a black man representing the state of Arizona. And I not only went to listen to his words, I wanted to see his body language. You see, as they say, spirit recognizes spirit. Truth also recognizes truth. And I gotta tell you, I was impressed. And I I also gotta tell you, it is very hard to impress me because I have lived a long time and I have seen a lot of things. And I've also heard a lot of lies. So I was impressed. And I will give this brother my vote. Not just because my ancestors died for my right to vote, but because I felt truth in this brother. And because we're stuck in a generation where loyalty is just a tattoo. Love is just a quote and lying is the new truth. And you know what, my friends? The world suffers a lot, not because of the violence of bad people, but because of the silence of good people. So sometimes you have to just step out there and open your mouth. That's why I am opening my mouth against the state of Florida. And this state has banned more books than any state in this country. And you gotta ask yourself why? Why is it that your history can be so bad that you want to steal ours or you want to hide ours? And you're waging a war against us that most black people can't see. And it's like racism towards us has not decreased. It's now merely deployed more sophisticatedly. Banning our books is banning us from history. And books are the carriers of civilization. Without books, history is silent, literature dumb, science crippled, thought and speculation at a standstill. Without books, the development of civilization would have been impossible. Books are humanity in print. And where would we be today without them? If books are banned, where would the generation of 21 25 be if they knew nothing about the lives of the people of the 17th and 18th century? Will their history be truthful? Or will they be living a lie? Friends, this is an ugly thing to say, but I'm going to say it anyway. Racial segregation characterizes every metropolitan area in the United States. And it bears responsibility for our most serious social and economic problems. It corrupts our criminal justice system. It causes economic inequality and produces large academic gaps between white and African-American school children. And the truth be told, we've taken no serious steps to desegregate neighborhoods. Because we are hobbled by a national myth that residential segregation is de facto, the result of private discrimination or personal choices that do not violate constitutional rights. When in truth, however... Residential segregation was created by racially explicit and unconstitutional government policy in the mid-20th century, including the racially explicit federal subsidization of whites-only suburbs in which African Americans were prohibited from participating and only I mean, only after learning the history of these policies can we prepare to undertake the national conversations necessary to remedy our unconstitutional racial landscape. Such a national conversation is now possible. Without minimizing the terrible dangers of today's resurgent white supremacist activities, we also should take hope from the reaction to it, a widespread willingness to confront, in many cases for the first time, the history of African American. You see, our previous failure, even refusal to do so, has impeded our ability to eliminate the racial caste conditions that permeate U.S. society. Now, the removal of the Confederate monuments of the South cannot be underestimated. And they acknowledge that these monuments were erected not after the Civil War to commemorate the misguided heroism of federal soldiers, but rather during the Jim Crow and post-Brown versus Board of Education era for the purpose of celebrating slavery and its residues in second-class citizenship. Now, who in the damn world Could have imagined, even a few years ago, that a white elected politician in the South presiding over the removal of a Robert E. Lee statue would proclaim that Confederate monuments celebrated a system where hundreds of thousands of souls were bought, sold, and shipped up the Mississippi River to lives of forced labor, of misery, of rape and of torture. America was the place where nearly 4,000 of our fellow citizens were lynched, 540 alone in Louisiana, where the courts enshrined separate but equal, where freedom riders coming to New Orleans were beaten to a bloody pulp. So when people say to me, Bo, these monuments in question are history— I can turn around and look them directly in the eye and say what I just described is real history as well. And you know what else? It is the searing truth. And it immediately begs the question, why are there no slave ship monuments? No prominent markings on public land to remember the lynchings or the slave blocks. Nothing to remember this long chapter of our lives. The pain and the sacrifice, the shame, all of it happening on the soil of the American South. So for those self-appointed defenders of history and the monuments, they are eerily silent on what amounts to this historical malfeasance, a lie by omission. And you see, there is a difference between remembrance of history and reverence of it. So here's the thing, my friends. Recognition of historic wrongs is essential in the resolve to correct them. Now, the past mayor of Charleston, South Carolina, Joseph Riley Jr., stated that only after we acknowledge the burden so many were forced to bear at the table for a deeper inquiry into the past, we all share can we begin to heal the wounds of racial injustice, bridge the gulf that divides us, and come together at last around a common understanding of who we truly are as American people. And that, my friends, is the truth, because our government segregated America resulting in the concentration of African Americans in segregated neighborhoods in every metropolitan area of the nation, not only in the South, but in the North, Midwest, and West as well. The Constitution requires knowledge of this history before we can enact policies to integrate our communities. And that's because the Supreme Court has made a distinction between de facto and de jure segregation. Now, de facto segregation simply means that it is in effect by right or not. And de facto segregation is racially concentration that results from private prejudice, discriminatory practices, of rogue real estate agents' personal choices to live with same-race neighbors or income differences that have kept low-income families from moving into middle-class communities. Now, de jure segregation simply means according to rightful entitlement or claim by right and results not from private activity, but from government law and policy that violated the 5th, 13th, and 14th Amendment to the federal Constitution. The Supreme Court said that if segregation is de facto, there is little that we can do to correct it. What happened by accident can only be undone by accident. But if segregation has been created de jure by government explicit racial policies, not only are we permitted to remedy it, we are required to do so. We share a national myth that residential segregation is de facto. It is a myth embraced not only by conservatives, but by liberals as well. It is perpetrated By our standard high school history curriculum, in which commonly used textbooks routinely describe segregation in the North as de facto, mysteriously involved without government direction. But that, my friends, is a lie. Federal, state, and local governments deliberately segregated residential areas in every metropolitan area of the nation designed to ensure that African-Americans and whites would have to live separately. Now, do you need proof of that? The federal government purposefully placed public housing in high poverty, racially isolated neighborhoods to concentrate the black population. And on top of that, it created a whites only mortgage insurance program to shift the white population from urban neighborhoods to exclusively white suburbs. The Internal Revenue Service granted tax exemptions for charitable activity to organizations that openly enforce neighborhood racial homogeneity. Government-licensed realtors with open support of state regulators enforced a code of ethics that prohibited the sale of homes to African Americans in white neighborhoods. And in thousands of cases, police forces organized and supported mob violence to drive black families out of homes on the white side of racial boundaries. Federal and state regulators sanctioned the refusal of the banking, thrift and insurance industries to make loans to homeowners in other race communities. But you know what? By the time the federal government reversed its policy of subsidizing segregation in 1962 and by the time the Fair Housing Act banned private discrimination in 1968, the residential patterns of major metropolitan areas were set. White suburbs that had been affordable to the black working class in the 40s, 50s and 60s were now no longer so both because of the increase in housing prices and the whites' home equity during that period and because other federal policies had depressed black incomes while supporting those of whites. At the beginning of the New Deal, the National Recovery Act established industrial wages at lower levels for industries where black workers predominated. Later, Social Security and Fair Labor Standards legislation excluded from coverage occupation in which African Americans predominated, for example, agriculture and domestic service. It was not until 1964 that the National Labor Relations Board, for the first time, refused to certify a union's exclusive bargaining establishment until it openly refused to represent black workers. We promote the myth of de facto segregation by misteaching our young people about our past. Such indoctrination of today's high school students minimizes the possibility of progress toward equality, when these students become our country's leaders. The next generation will do no better job than our generation has done of progressing toward a better future. Unless we teach our young people a less sanitized version of our past. Well, my friends, that's how it was done. That is how our government segregated the United States. And I got to ask you, my friends, other than the wealth gap, did we really gain anything by integration? I know damn well we lost some things. And one of the things we lost was pride. But that's subject for another time. But we're going to get there. Stay with me. We will get there. And I'm asking all of you to stay with me. My haters too, but just realize I'm not going to censor myself to comfort your ignorance. Keep sending me messages, my friend, Show at yahoo.com. If you have a little knowledge you want to share, we are willing to share it. And I hope you have a great day today. The music tells me that it's time for me to get out of here. But before I go, you know I got a message for you. And that message comes from Ida B. Wells. And she said the way to right a wrong is to turn the light of truth upon it. Until next time, my friends, it has been my honor. Peace to my ancestors and elders. I walk in your strength, legacy, and power today and every day.